You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Justice is Served, where we bring you the latest in trending legal news on a weekly basis here on Black Hollywood Live. My name is Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal defense attorney and one of your co-hosts on the show. And I'm super excited about today's very special edition of Justice is Served. First of all, my partner in crime, Mari (laughs) Fagel, is back in the studio. Mari, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back. Mari was gone for uh, three months. It's a three-day exam, the bar exam, but, you know, it's a three-month ordeal, so <laughs> we can all relate. So it's really nice to have you back, Mari. Thank you. And also, um, we have a very, very special guest in the studio with us, Assistant United States Attorney Mac Jenkins. Mac, welcome to Justice is Served. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Mari. I appreciate you having me. Of course. It's it's a, it's an honor to have Mac on the show, um, and, I, and I'm not puffing. This is the truth. He's one of my favorite colleagues um, on the other side of the fence because he's a prosecutor. But, um, but he's somebody that, whether you talk to judges, defense attorneys, or prosecutors, they unanimously agree that he's one of the most hardworking um, intelligent and very fair-minded prosecutors out there. So it's it's an honor for me to have you on the show joining us. Thank and you very much. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Mac, although there's a lot to say about Mac. I'm going to try to be here <laughs> brief, um, and I won't say the embarrassing things about Mac. Thank no. you, I appreciate um, that. <laughs> he is um, he grew up in Long Beach and Irvine, California, and he went on to UCLA for his undergrad studies. And after that, he finished his law studies at Yale Law School, where he received his law degree, and um, immediately joined the prestigious firm of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher for a few years, and then joined the United States Attorney's Office for the Central District of California here in Los Angeles in 2008. He was for several years prosecuting um, as a member of the Organized Crime and uh, Drug Enforcement Section. That's how I actually met Mac. We had a couple of interesting cases together over the years. And currently, he is assigned to the Public Corruption and Civil Rights Section of that office. He is the um a, a hate crimes coordinator of, of his office as well as the human trafficking co-coordinator in that office. Um, currently, Mac is co-prosecuting the case against former Senator Ron Calderon and his brother for a slew of crimes, including tax evasion, fraud, money laundering, and public corruption. He is also the lead prosecutor in um, the largest RICO, which is racketeering case, um, in our district against the Broadway gangster Crips for, you name it, Murder, um, conspiracy to murder, drug trafficking, sale of drugs near school grounds, um, weapons charges, robberies, etc. What isn't included in that <laughs> indictment? Um, anyway, and um, and so um, uh, there's so much to say about Mac. But recently, in 2014, he was also selected as Lawyer of the Year by California um, uh, Lawyers Magazine. So uh, thank you for 
accepting the invitation, and and there's lots to talk to you well, about. Thank today. you for that long <laughs> intro. Yeah, I appreciate right, it. Um, we didn't talk about your football. <laughs> like I said, we'll keep the embarrassing stuff. Um, okay, so let's kick off the show. Well, before we kick off the show, I think Mac has a disclosure that he needs to make that his office requires. That is true. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, for I am here representing the U.S. Attorney's Office, but in my personal capacity. Uh, every opinion that's expressed is my view and my view alone um, and should not be imputed to my office, the U.S. Attorney's Office, or the Department of Justice, or any federal agency. That's her standard disclaimer, um, so thank you. And we'll honor that and we'll respect that. So um, we want to start with a discussion of hate crimes. In the recent um, you know, past couple of months, I should say, we've had um, a lot of discussion about the 21-year-old um, white boy Dylan Roof in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, who walked into the historical black church, the first AME church in Charleston, and opened fire, killing nine parishioners. Um, he was recently indicted. Um, our Attorney General Loretta Lynch Lynch made a made a statement about the case. Um, I believe it was on July 22nd, and he he's been indicted on federal hate crimes. So my first question to you is, what makes a murder a hate crime that the federal government goes after and prosecutes? It's a good question. It's a, a difficult question to answer because, um, like many legal questions, it depends. Um, and what I mean by that is. Uh, for this example, everything comes down to the evidence. Uh, a standard murder can be prosecuted and often is prosecuted by the state. They're much more well-equipped to be reactionary. They, a crime happens, they have tons of DAs, they have tons of LAPDs, officers, or whatever local agency. They mm-hmm. work together, mm-hmm. um, and they can turn around that crime scene quickly, and they just get there first, frankly. Um, even if it's a hate crime, meaning if there's some racial motive. However, if someone gets killed, uh, willful murder, uh, illegal murder, typically, if the evidence is there that someone did it, someone committed a murder, then it's a pretty easy case. You just go with the murder, meaning that it's an easy case, you can get a conviction, you focus on the murder. Someone died, it was illegal, you find the people responsible. The state typically prosecutes that, the state has jurisdiction. When it becomes a hate crime, when there's some motive element, when it's a impermissible bias, whether it be for race, religion, gender, gender identity, mm-hmm. then it becomes more complicated, both in terms of the prosecution and who will prosecute it. Well, don't you need a, an animate, like, you, I, I think you need, even under state laws that have hate crimes, we, we um, South Carolina doesn't, surprise, Correct. surprise. Uh, but I think under state laws that, that have hate crimes, you, you're looking for an animus against a specific group that's protected, right? Yes. And that's the same under federal law, right? It's similar. Okay. So, what really it matters is at first you look if it's a protected class right and then whether that crime was committed because of the protected class mm-hmm. um it's actually still up for debate in the supreme court now whether that you actually need animus against that protected class it's actually trickier than that if you do have animus for example um you commit a murder and you're saying for example i want to start a race war black people you are raping our women and attacking our children mm-hmm. um that's pretty clear that that person has racial animus mm-hmm. however the law is a little bit broader than that and by that it can be when the conduct that is perpetrated against the person is only because they were were gay or because they were uh, transgender. Um, You don't actually have to demonstrate an animus against those types of people, Mm -hmm. but you have to demonstrate that 
their protected class was the reason you perpetrated that crime. So it gets complicated, okay. but it's actually a little bit broader. It's easier for us because a lot of the defenses, as you will see, will be, oh, um, I attacked this gay couple. But at home, I'm, ha- I'm friends with gay couples. Mm-hmm. Then my next door neighbor's a gay mm-hmm. couple. But you realize that had that couple he attacked not been gay, the uh, crime wouldn't have committed. Mm. So it's really a but for causation as I opposed see. to demonstrated a, a animus motive. So how do you go about um, finding evidence of that motive and presenting it to a jury, especially when, like you say, the defendants come back and say, oh, well, I'm friends with these people, or, you know, I have family members of these people, so it couldn't have been for that reason. How do you present that evidence to prove motive? It is very difficult. That is why, frankly, it's very rare to see, especially a federal hate crime prosecution, when, for example, even Dylan Roof's case, it's clear he killed all those people. That's going to be a very easy murder trial. It'll be probably a uh, easy but less easy hate crime trial. So typically, they don't get to that, um, and for those reasons, because it's very difficult but to take I'm a picture sorry. of someone. Along those lines, um, he, as he was shooting and killing these these prisoners, he was saying that. Um, basically he's had it with black on white crime that black men are raping, uh, white women. Um, I need to get rid of you. I mean, he's saying these very, these, making these statements very clearly. And he's an online history. Yeah, online history. I mean, his computer was like, you know, if I was a law enforcement or prosecutor, it'd be like a kid in a candy shop. Everything was in there. It was like, you know, the, the last Rhodesian website that he had with a manifesto Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then the photos with the Mm -hmm. Confederate flag and burning the American flag. I mean, what more does it take to get him on a hate crime in federal court? Very little. I, yeah. Unfortunately, that is a very, very extremely rare paradigmatic hate crime case. Um, you do. It's rare, um, to Mari's question, you rarely have evidence of someone's motive when you can get into their mind. But when they're expressing their mind clearly, either on recording or in their diary or on the Internet, you actually do get access into that person's mind and motive that in a traditional hate crime you just mm-hmm. don't have. So it's this is atypical. Di- this is certainly atypical. Right. This is like a textbook case that's atypical. It is indeed. It's much more difficult to bring when the person, when every other circumstantial uh, evidence points to this is a hate crime. Right. But the person didn't say, didn't drop an N-bomb, or right, didn't right. say, wasn't wearing a Confederate flag, or wasn't saying, right. I hate gays. He's pretty much done it all, A to C. <laughs> so he, he's made it very easy for the feds, but there still are ways to find out other um, methods to prosecute a hate crime, and typically it's by eliminating other motives. Mm-hmm. For most mm-hmm. violent crime, particularly murder, motive is still the best way to find out what happened. Okay. And by a process of elimination, um, figuring out, okay, it wasn't because there was a fight, there was no previous relationship between the people, um, there was no dispute, the victims were law-abiding, crossing the street, some sort of, uh, you, cro- you cross out all the other motives, right. and then you have to argue to the jury, look at the facts as they stand. It's only because of uh, that what they else were could it be? transgender. Yeah. yeah. Put right. anyone else, put yourself in that situation, you would have been able to walk the street fine, but because these two men were holding hands in West Hollywood, and there was some sort of, you have to have something. There's some right. sort of comment, either before or after, and then you got to argue it to the jury. Right. Um, but it's difficult. It's difficult because people will brag about, oh, yeah, I beat up those two people. But rarely will they throw in there, yeah, I, I beat them up because they were gay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, frankly, they'll get prosecuted for assault versus a hate crime. And that happened in uh, in the Trayvon Martin case. Mari and I were talking about that where George Zimmerman in Florida 
um, shot and killed uh, Trayvon Martin and was was acquitted on the state side. And then our former Attorney General Eric Holder announced that they can't because it's it's so challenging. These cases are so challenging to bring that the standard is so high um, to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that um, this that the race of the um, of the boy was was the primary motive that unfortunately the D- uh, Department of Justice could not pursue a case against Zimmerman. But um, there's also discussion, and I'm sure some of our viewers would want to know about double jeopardy. Okay. Um, so this guy is getting Roof, for example, is getting prosecuted in uh, South Carolina. He's going to face the death penalty, and and now there's an indictment uh, by the feds. Is there any issue of double jeopardy? Um, it's a good question, and, and you're right, a question a lot of uh, viewers may have, and in fact, a question a lot of federal judges also have. When we prosecute cases either at the same time as the state or after the state is prosecuted. In fact, um, p- judges will often raise their eyebrows when we prosecute a state case where the defendant got acquitted. Mm-hmm. So in people's minds, isn't that that paradigmatic right. double jeopardy? It had his t- day in court, the jury said he didn't do it, and then the feds come around, indict him for the exact same thing, and he goes to trial or what have you. It sounds like double jeopardy, but it's absolutely not. Mm-hmm. The case law has been clear since 1800 that it's double jeopardy is when you get prosecuted for the same crime successively. Right. However, there's something called the dual sovereignty doctrine, which is we are in California. We are also uh, citizens of the United States. Mm-hmm. You commit a crime in California, that also may be a, a separate crime against the United States. You've committed two crimes by one act. State can go first. We can always go second. And that what makes um, my job uh, always very important to me, particularly in hate crime cases, when we're often the last resort. And typically we do let the state go first. They're much more prepared, as I said at the beginning, to handle those types of cases. But if it happens and we feel like the state didn't, for whatever reason, was unable to vindicate justice or federal interests remain, we will absolutely prosecute that case again, regardless of the result, regardless if it was a conviction with a small sentence or if it was a straight acquittal. Uh, as famously done in L.A. when the Ronnie King uh, police officers were mm-hmm. acquitted by the state and then prosecuted by my office and were convicted after that. And that's Does it help you from an evidentiary standpoint that, that you've let the state do all the preliminary work? And absolutely, then, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and frequently you will see when that happens, uh, if a state defendant goes through a trial and wins or has some favorable result, and then we prosecute that person anyway, right. they know that we're serious. They also know that we got a pretty good head start because we saw their defenses, we saw their witnesses, we saw the weaknesses in the state's case. <laughs> and so it's a, it's right. a different ballgame. So we, we have that distinct advantage. And you would also be able to pursue a case um, in a state that does have, like let's say South Carolina doesn't have hate crime statutes, but let's say it did. Yep. Um, you could still pursue a federal hate crime case against someone who's being uh, prosecuted for hate crime under their state laws. Correct. And that's, in fact, exactly what's happening in South Carolina and why it's happening. Well, South Carolina, he's being uh, prosecuted for murder and then he's going to be he's indicted for for under the hate crime uh, statutes, but he's going to be prosecuted. I think that's what you were saying is that they're they're waiting. The DOJ is waiting for his um, trial to occur before they pursue the case. His is actually, it's more unique than that. Typically, that's how we do it. They charged him with murder in South Carolina. Right. They did not charge him with hate crimes. So they don't have a statute. Correct. So right. part of the, Loretta Lynch has already charged him. Typically, we would wait to charge to see I what see. happens. But it's actually a parallel track right now. Okay. And part of it, 
Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, made clear is because she wants the words hate crime to be on America's mind, that this wasn't mm-hmm. just an ordinary murder, that it was more pernicious, it's more right. damaging to the community and our fabric. So she went ahead and charged him with hate crimes, um, even though, yeah, he faces a very likely death penalty in South Carolina, probably more swift than in the federal system mm-hmm. um, because of the murder. But because they don't have any hate crimes, because they don't have that statute, mm-hmm. Loretta Lynch says, no, we need this is bigger. What he's done is worse. And for our community and for the nation's sake, we're going to charge him with hate crimes. Right. I have a question. Let's take Dylan Roof's case as an example. How would um, the state prosecution of him for murder and then the federal prosecution for hate crime differ in terms of the amount of evidence that's let in? Because, you know, you talk about how motive is the most important thing to prove in a hate crime case. So I imagine you'd be able to get into a lot more evidence of Dylan Roof's background than you would be in a state case. Because I imagine in a state case, the judge would exclude a lot of evidence as being prejudicial. Mm -hmm. Is that the case in a federal case or you have a lot more you have a lot more ground to let in evidence that otherwise would be deemed prejudicial that is sounds like a recent law school graduate question (laughs) uh, because that is exactly right a big limitation on south carolina's charging framework is that a judge could really limit it really narrow the scope of that Mm -hmm. case which again is is back to the problem they could never see those photos of him with the confederate flag and the gun certainly they would never a jury would never see that even though that exactly is part of the core of that Mm -hmm. case and the core of the problem right so absolutely providing when you make that an element essentially which it would be you're hearing all that you're getting in his diary you're getting Mm -hmm. his pictures with the old uh south african jacket or whatever he was wearing you're getting all that and seeing really what that community was about what that individual was about where in a, a state murder case you would that would never uh reach the jury so is that one reason why it takes so long because you keep mentioning the fact that a state prosecution is swift swift justice yep. so what takes so long in a federal case um Typically, yes, there's different evidentiary rules. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's just a much slower system in the federal system. It's much slower uh, federal mechanisms because we use a lot of different agencies. Um, local police usually have a DA and first responding officers. Uh, the feds are using all types of different entities mm-hmm. um, because we're more built for longer term investigations. And so absolutely one of that is, yeah, let's compile all of his bias evidence, his motive evidence, where in a murder case... Uh, he said he shot them. That's the case. We haven't. Mm-hmm. Why do we care about what's in his uh, backpack mm-hmm. or what's in his computer? Mm-hmm. Um, in a federal hate crime case, we're going through all of it. Um, and so that's just one aspect um, of it. But it, it's a critical one here because it, the evidence is certainly a very compelling factor in in his case. There's certainly an abundance of, of evidence in his case. And I was my next question was, what are some of the possible defenses? Because <laughs> as a defense attorney, I'm interested. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never defended a hate crime. But um, in a case like this, where um, even if you were going to go with the process of elimination to say, okay, this was not the motive, how could you do that in this case? Um, I can't wait to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, know, I can't wait too. to find out. Typically, right. typically the defenses are, uh, I was drunk or high or on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, or... I was joking. Clearly, this would be the worst joke of all time. Right. Um, or I was just bragging. I was saying it was braggadocio. I was trying to... I hated this person so because he stole my girlfriend. But it's not because of his race. Yeah, but I'm right. just saying anything possible. It's like when a person's down, you kick him in the head, you kick him anywhere. It's because I want to do anything possible to, to beat that person. And I knew it would hurt his feelings or make them intimidated. 
But it wasn't really the motive of why I was committing the crime. It was just, you know, cherry on top. Right. And what about um, the death penalty in a federal case like this? And and what other consequences would a defendant um, who's ultimately convicted of this crime be facing, if not the death penalty? Um, Well, so it's interesting. So in 2009, there was an act, uh, Matthew Shepard James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which was enacted under President Obama in 2009. It was the first of its kind because it expanded what protected classes covered were covered under hate crimes. Mm-hmm. It added disabilities, gender identity, uh, gender itself, and um, sexual orientation. Race was always one. But, and he's charged with that. It's 249. Um, but hate crime 249 doesn't actually bring the death penalty. Not sure why, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Other hate crimes, such as 245, these are federal statutes, do carry the death penalty. And so Dylan Roof is charged with a lot of, they call it the um, Shepherd Bird Act hate crime, where mm-hmm. there's no death penalty. But he's also charged with interfering with their right to express religion, which does carry the death right. penalty. Okay. And so that is certainly why they charge those, to give themselves the opportunity to charge the death penalty if they wish. And it's rare to get the death penalty in, in federal court, isn't it? Federal right. court, is it is very rare to even seek it. Right. Uh, meaning that when it's a different process, DAs and states, uh, mm-hmm. you have a capital offense. Typically, they're going to seek the death penalty. Right. In our office, you have to actually, before you indict the case, you have to set it up, send up a certification to the attorney general, now Loretta Lynch. And ultimately, it's Loretta Lynch that tells you, yes, go for the death penalty or no, you cannot go for the death penalty. And typically, the answer is more the latter. Um, for whatever reason, it takes a lot of time, but it is very, very rare that the feds seek the death penalty. So, so what, what would he be facing if not the death penalty? He faces a lot of life counts, a mandatory life counts. Mm-hmm. So he would get um, life in federal prison. And in federal system, there is no parole. Mm-hmm. There is some good time credits. But he would be looking at mandatory life on... Uh, many of the other counts. He's also charged with gun counts that carry uh, mandatory consecutive sentences, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that the court couldn't go below them and would be stacked on whatever else oh, he's yes. looking at. He's he's looking at uh, many of his lifetimes in jail, but he's not yet looking at the death penalty in the federal system. You, you mentioned that Loretta Lynch, um, immediately when this happened, wanted this parallel track of prosecuting him for a hate crime as well. And we're talking about a lot of the consequences that Dylan Roof will face um, if he is if he is found guilty, you know, mandatory life. What are the other consequences of a federal hate crime guilty verdict? I mean, in the public eye, is there a reason why she was so quick to want to prosecute this? Is it responding to the climate right now and how the black community feels? And what what kind of response do you get from a guilty verdict from a hate crime as opposed to just a guilty verdict from a state murder trial? Certainly. It's another good question, and I cannot speak for Loretta Lynch. Mm -hmm. However, I did happen to be at a luncheon where she was just prior to making that press conference, and you can tell from her comments even before the the press conference that certainly she's well aware of the racial climate um, that uh, I think most of us at this point are aware of, and you know how it's a, a powder keg, and I think if speaking from my perspective and hearing her speak, I think absolutely it's important to tell the country and all communities, not just white and black, but all the racial identities and gender identities, that we realize things are not going well right now, and that so when someone like this, as we talk about, so egregiously makes his motive to create a race war, to create hate, that 
every opportunity and power of the federal government, the state government, would be brought to bear to let people know that they will be prosecuted as much and as many times by as many entities as possible. Because, yeah, absolutely, it's part to show um, to the country that she takes this seriously, that the community takes it seriously. Um, because she could have said, yeah, look at the evidence. He's going to get convicted. But it isn't just about the conviction itself. Mm-hmm. It's about what that conviction means. And mm-hmm. it is difficult to prosecute a hate crime. Um, and she could have taken the easy way out. Said, you get South Carolina, you guys got it. Take it home. But she wants it to be more about that Or message. she could have taken the route that we saw with Trayvon Martin where George Zimmerman was acquitted. And then I, what I felt like everyone kind of looked to the federal system to think, oh, well, maybe it's – um, a last resort. It's a second chance. It's a second shot at George Zimmerman. And Eric Holder waited pretty much until he announced that he was leaving up until right. that last moment to finally announce, never mind, we're not going to prosecute George Zimmerman. And I think it was a second time that the country or the black community yep. was let down by that result. So are you, what do you think about that? Uh, I think it's interesting because typically... Even in our office, the U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A., and definitely in D.C. at Maine Justice, as we call it, we don't really talk about an investigation being over. We don't tell everyone, okay, we give up or there's nothing there, unless it's a high-profile case mm-hmm. and it's got a lot of media attention. And so you've seen that now in Ferguson with um, Michael Brown. Um, you saw it in Trayvon Martin. But those are very unique. The Department of Justice opens and closes all kinds of investigations every day, all day, um, throughout the year. And so what I think uh, Attorney General Holder, again, speaking from my uh, view of what I think he was doing, is he realized that the country wanted a second look at that. Um, but I think he also realized, uh, because he figured – from our vantage point, it didn't seem like everything may have been looked at uh, sufficiently the first time mm-hmm. around. And so he wanted to give that country that kind of assurance that the second chance, the feds were going to look at it. Um, but that was a very, very difficult case to prosecute as a hate crime. Mm-hmm. Most legal expert prosecutors thought even the state shouldn't have charged it how they did. Um, mm-hmm. thought they, they looked like, in my view... You know, a lot of political pressure, community pressure, and mm-hmm. tried what they thought would be the right thing and turned out to be the worst thing. They mm-hmm. probably could have, in my view, done something a little more compromise, mm-hmm. uh, more of a compromise. So I think Attorney General Holder didn't want to make that same mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, right. In my view, there's no way uh, that he was going to get convicted of a hate crime federally. Right. And so I think Attorney General Holder and, and what I saw was wanted people to know that we took it seriously, that something clearly was definitely wrong here. But it wasn't necessarily uh, a hate hate crime. crime. It was the legal system that didn't allow for some sort of conviction for this type of conduct. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what he said. Um, And I don't think it was a a cop-out by any means. Um, I think he knew he didn't want to get in the same situation to overcharge someone. And then it looks like you're just prosecuting him just because it was a black kid. And so now we're over-prosecuting other Mm -hmm. people. Instead, he looked at the system that created that environment, that confrontation, and the fact that yeah, just because it wasn't a hate crime doesn't mean that he should be, Zimmerman should have been walked away free. Right. And he did say it's a very high standard. It's a challenge to to prosecute these types of cases. Okay. A couple more things on hate crimes. Um, you are the leading prosecutor in the investigation of the Ramona Gardens housing project firebombing that um, looks like it's a hate crime. Yes. Uh, I know you can't give us too much information because it's an open investigation. Correct. But um, 
what kinds of, well, first of all, factually, this happened in 2014. Yes. It's in Boyle Heights, this housing project. It's primarily a Hispanic uh, community and uh, with a few black families living there. And there were four apartment units that were targeted with homemade uh, Molotov cocktails. And, uh, and and race appears to be the motive because there's always been racial tensions in, in that community. So, um in, in a case like this, to the extent you can share with us, what would you look for as evidence? I mean, the disproportion can't be the only thing that would... Disproportion is not the only thing, but it's a good start. It's kind of the disparate impact test back in uh, civil rights classes that when you see something and something just doesn't look right, there's only, I think in that housing project in Ramona Gardens, uh, don't quote me on it, but around 112 units where families live. About 10 of them are owned by African-Americans or leased by Mm -hmm. African-Americans. So there's a firebombing that occurs that just happens to hit four units and that all those units are either occupied by black families or one of the units actually was occupied by a Hispanic family but right next door to a black family Mm -hmm. um, are at this point estimates that they just missed. But... That definitely was red flag number one, right? Um, because that it was, that disparate impact was so egregious um, that it caught people's attention. Second, there's actually a history in Ramona Gardens of that type of conduct. So yeah, so we we start there and then we look to see if there's some sort of pattern, and there has been about a decade before firebombs hit black families in Ramona Gardens, same projects, and those black families said no thanks and moved out. And for a mm-hmm. long time, it was almost all Hispanics after that. And the mayor, Eric Garcetti, it's why he made this one such a high priority, and there's still today is there a $100,000 reward for it, because he doesn't want to see that kind of racial disharmony again. Going on. But w- there's only one suspect in custody so far. That's the last I um, knew the, about it. The news report is there's a, a person who's of interest who's in custody on a separate incident. Right, but there was DNA matching DNA, that damn DNA evidence. That, um, <laughs> best kind of evidence. Although it's not I in every DNA case. Evidence. It's not CSI. We can't get it all the time, but right. when you do. When you do, you cling on to it. Um, so, uh, is it, it, and these were gang members that, uh, that I can say there, she, he was part of a gang. The, the person you are talking about is a documented hazard gang member. Okay. Ramona Gardens is, um, we say, controlled, dominated rightfully terrorizing and dominating the Ramona Gardens housing projects. This game gang by the name of Big Hazard. Our office shortly after there actually did a big RICO takedown of Hazard gang members in that project. About 55 uh, members were prosecuted by Jennifer Williams from mm-hmm. my office. And as part of her indictment, it says Big Hazard has a uh, deep enmity or hatred towards African Americans. Um, a history of firebombing, assaults, tagging, and intimidations to try to kick them out. Is it common that hate crimes are committed by by gangs or gang members? It is. And the problem, as we've also seen, again, a problem and challenge to prosecuting hate crimes is um, a lot of gangs are identify racially. Um, there's short black gangs, Armenian gangs, Hispanic gangs. Aryan Brotherhood. White gangs. And right. a lot of them, unsurprisingly, don't get along. But is that because of mm-hmm. the race or because they're in different gangs? So it becomes more difficult when um, we say that the a black gang attacked a Hispanic right. gang. So is that a hate crime? The, right, right. And 
probably there's some racial animus, and mm-hmm. but it's also just easy to identify someone in a rival gang if they're a different color. Right. Um, so is that the reason they prosecuted them, or excuse, reason they uh, called a hate crime? Right. Um, so it's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. In the Ramona Gardens case, it's different because the family's targeted. Uh, as far as we know at this point, there's no connections to any gangs. Okay. So talking about finding motives, that's how we're... We talked about earlier crossing out motives. Here, there's no gang on gang. It's innocent civilians being targeted. Right. Um, and one last question on hate crimes. I think it's something both Mari and I want to know is what is your most memorable hate crime case? Uh, I, w- I was <laughs> either way. You, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question. Um, <laughs> partly because you were involved in it. In hmm. fact, um, when I first started as a baby AUSA around 2008, um, I got a case from a senior AUSA who told me. Here's a file. It'll be a piece of cake. I remember it to this day. Real done. Easy plea. It's about something about a passport. And the guy's defendant's name is Ross Hack. And so I'm like, all right, I could do that. Passport fraud sounds basic. Ross Hack, you know, sounds like a some sort of nerd. Uh, I think hey, that don't talk I was, about my clients like that. I was wrong on every account. Um, fast forward. That was 2008. Fast forward. Four years later, um, we've done a lot of investigation. Turns out Ross Hack was a longtime, well-known neo-Nazi from Las Vegas who was a suspect in a brutal double murder in 1998, unsolved cold case murder where a uh, black individual and a white individual, and there's a lot of twists and turns, so I'll try to keep it tight, but um, Ross Hack was in a neo-Nazi gang in Vegas, which are very big out in Vegas, who I didn't even know neo-Nazis still existed, but they do, and there's a lot of them in Vegas. But there's also a counter. Um, back in the 90s, there's a group called the uh, Sharps, which were skinheads against racial prejudice. So they dressed, listened to skinhead music, but they were for racial harmony and against uh, racial bias. So they are kind of the rivals to Ross Hack's neo-Nazi uh, skinhead gangs. And so they had a long-running dispute. January, July 4th, 1998, the leader of the Sharps, a black man, and his like co-president get um, lured out to the desert by two females who say, hey, we want to go party. Let's hang out. You guys seem cool. You have a lot of tattoos. Bring them out there. Um, meet up uh, when they go in separate cars. The two victims, Lynn, Shursty, Lynn Newborn and Daniel Shursty, get out of the car. They're African-American. Lynn Newborn is black. Daniel Shursty is white. Okay. But they're both in the sharps. They're right. Both in they're the, both in the mm-hmm. rival gang, basically. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They both get out of the car. Let's go talk to these girls. Get out of the car. The girls are gone. Um, but four to six white males are there ready to ambush them. Lynn Newborn immediately runs, takes off, makes about 100 yards before he's shot several times. Daniel Shursty's shot as soon as he gets out of the car. Lynn Newborn is found with a bullet. Uh, in the back of his head and a boot print on his back, meaning likely that someone caught him, shot him, caught up to him again, and executed him. So we had evidence that uh, the mastermind of that plan was Ross Hack, who was this passport fraud guy that came across my desk many years later. Um, It became a memorable case because it went from this passport fraud to this cold case double homicide, where ultimately he was charged along with his sister, Ross Hack's sister, Ross Hack's girlfriend, another neo-Nazi, one of their roommates, People who, at this point, had been living their lives for around 15 years. Post-murders. Post-murder. Mm-hmm. Um, as semi-normal citizens, some of them. Um, and so we we thought it was a hate crime. It was charged as a murder on federal land. It was difficult because um, uh, there was some sort of a gang, as we talked about. It was kind of a gang versus gang thing. Um, Daniel Shursty was white. Um, but it was clear that the motive was actually race because the dispute between the gangs was one wanted you know 
racial uh, superiority and one wanted racial harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, so just charging it as a hate crime was very difficult, um, and getting people to cooperate. But was why very did difficult. the government uh, lose that case? Um, so ultimately, Ross Hack was acquitted, along with one of his co-defendants. However, the three of the people cooperated, meaning they agreed that they participated in the murder 15 years later. Both the females cooperated, and one other individual uh, who basically, when he when they came to talk to him 15 years later, said, I've been waiting to get this off my chest for 15 years. He had changed his life, worked in insurance, had a family, and really wanted to get this off of his chest. Thank you. And... The problem was we called the CSI effect. It was 16 years ago. 16 years ago, there was no DNA. There was no forensics. It was three people: the main guy's girlfriend, the main guy's sister, and this guy who changed his life. Who said, "You know what? This is what happened. We lured mm-hmm. these people out there. It's what everyone thought. Everyone suspected. Um, but sometimes the juries want more. They want the mm-hmm. video. They want the DNA. It also didn't help that the guy who turned his life around uh, was mysteriously killed in a taxi accident before he could ever testify. Um, so then it was just the two girls. And the two girls who pled guilty got major sentences who are in custody to this day while the mastermind and the shooters walk free. So that's my most memorable hate crime case <laughs> and the worst memory of a hate crime case. It's, 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 and just for the record... Um or off the re- or for the record, off the record, kind of. But um, that that client, I did not represent, as you know, Ross Hack in any of the proceedings except for the passport fraud case on the sentencing, and that is also very memorable for me because it was the worst sentencing I've ever had in federal court. Um, a, ca- a case where my client was exposed to zero to six months. He walked away with four and a half years in prison because all of his tattoos came in. All of these things that. Normally, you don't see in a passport fraud case. Uh, we're, we're coming in as relevant conduct, and um, and we were before a very fair judge, I think. But um, the evidence was not good for for my client. But I, yeah, that was the <laughs> memorable sentencing I had so far in federal court in my career. But anyway, um, let's move on to. Um, some of the things that Mari wanted to discuss, which is the color of law violations. So there's the police, uh, you know, repeatedly in the past, at least since I've joined the, the show, almost every week we're talking about a white cop somewhere in the nation shooting an unarmed black man and killing the person or choking them, like we saw with Eric Garner in New York. And um, and I know that your office also prosecutes those cases. So, Mari, I don't know if you want to get a lead on those questions or... Well, kind of what we were talking about before was, um, I think the black community was at least with the Trayvon Martin case looking to uh, federal prosecution as a way to prevent what happened to Trayvon Martin. I think with what's happening with a lot of these police brutality cases um, when there is no indictment I at least am looking to then the second step, the last resort. So Mm -hmm. my question is do you think there is a way that federal prosecution, whether it be hate crime, which I think would be difficult to prove in the case of a cop, how do you prove a cop's motive was race-based, or in a civil rights violation, whatever the avenue is, do you think that federal prosecution is a way that could help stem police brutality as we see it today? I think it is a big um, component, the federal prosecution part. We do, um, we're independent of the state. 
uh, we're independent of the local police department. So we have a different level of oversight. We have a different chain of command. It's obviously very difficult for a, although not impossible, for a police agency to interview, interrogate, review their own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not surprising, and it's not always they just want to protect their own, but they have some affinity towards them. They want to believe that their partners and colleagues did just what they would have done in mm-hmm. that situation. And so I think I, I think the first step is that. In the federal system, um, as federal prosecutors, one part of our training is actually going to uh, FBI Academy or local FBI uh, shooting range and going through scenarios, shooting scenarios, life or death scenarios, and where you go through and with a simulator, obviously, and go through all the different scenarios that the, the feds are trained to and how to deal with those types of situations. And frankly, I think it should be mandatory for every citizen. It should be like taking a driver's test because it, it'll give you a newfound respect for being in a situation every day of your life where one second you make the wrong decision you're dead or you make the wrong decision and someone who shouldn't be dead is and that ruins your life too um so i think we just have a different perspective um looking at it we do try to be empathetic or sympathetic for that police officer but still not biased towards that because they're wearing a badge they can do no wrong Mm -hmm. we do one of our as a civil rights obligation and responsibility we prosecute a lot of law enforcement officers and we have i'd say more expansive tools to do that but what do you mean you have more expansive tools so the the way that state system works is because they are so uh, I'd say overburdened, um, reactionary. They're dealing with a lot of cases. We have different technologies that we utilize. Um, we have more resources, frankly, and that those, without getting into the specifics, um, we have ways to investigate crimes that have not yet, uh, are available to the state. And so, frankly, when it gets more sophisticated, when it isn't a shooting that's on a video that, okay, everyone look at the video, decide what happens. But, no, we want to see who was talking to who prior to that, who was talking to who after that, where was their car, um, things that go on beyond just a, a couple days of investigation. We have the manpower and the technological resources, because we're the federal government, that isn't always available to a local police department. Mm-hmm. LAPD, NYPD, they're good. They got a lot of stuff. But some of the smaller ones, just mm-hmm. frankly, just don't have those resources. And a lot of them will say, FBI, come look at this, because we're not prepared to, not prepared or just not, frankly, able to as much as we want to. It's not because we don't believe we can do it straightforward and honest and forthrightly, but we need help. And that's that's how we see our role um, come in those situations. But, but in the in in a lot of these cases, um, Ferguson, uh, Garner, um, Tamir Rice, and in, in in Ohio, um, there's two investigations that the federal government conducts. One is with respect to the incident itself to see whether the cop was um, acting in violation of the. Um, um, color of law statutes, um, and the other is the pattern and practice investigation. And so I think one of the things that really outraged a lot of people about Ferguson was that how can you come back and say there's systemic bias, you've got to change your court system and your police department and everything, your whole municipality, basically, and we're going to, by the way, enforce it through the courts. Um, but then this Officer Wilson gets off the hook, and he didn't do anything wrong. So could you just... Um, Distinguish that those two different investigations and maybe the different goals that they're intended to accomplish. Sure, and it, it doesn't happen with every investigation, but our civil rights component component has a criminal component and a civil component, um, which means that uh, they investigate crimes, but they also investigate. Uh, 
ways that there could be civil remedies where not people aren't going to jail, um, but it's more how can we fix this? It's more about rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't happen in every case. But I think the good and bad of Ferguson, again, in my view, is um, uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson got a lot of attention to a very dangerous and explosive environment of um, cops killing unarmed minorities. The problem with that is that it should definitely wasn't a good uh, figurehead case. That was not a good case for that. Um, the evidence, there's an 80-page report, um, and uh, I've seen a lot of reviews and people talk about it. I don't know anyone uh, besides prosecutors have read the 80-page report, but it's not really a close call, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not at all. There are certainly much better kind of figurehead cases well, that like should Eric be brought Gardner. to life. Tamir Rice. Tamir, Tamir Rice, Rice, Eric Gardner, Walter Scott, right. um, Christian Taylor um, may turn out to be one that's the and one And why is, week. by the way, Eric Garner taking so long for the DOJ to uh, decide, <laughs> come up with their 100-page report? I mean, why is that taking so long? It, it started, the investigation started in December of 2014. I don't know, I don't know that you know the answer are going to give us the answer but um, I don't know the answer but they haven't yeah. said they haven't said no yet right. the the Ferguson one actually came back pretty quickly because it was a clear no mm-hmm. but the good side beyond again I think it brought to light um, what was this, happening there. what was happening right. it was brought to light what's happening in the community large and in Ferguson there's a reason right. Ferguson reacted in my mind to someone in a different situation uh, Michael Brown probably wouldn't have got the same kind of level of support. Um, but in Ferguson, people were so fed up. Right. So people, it was like they the make straw it, that broke. Yeah. Exactly. They make it about Michael Brown. But in fact, it's about the Ferguson community, community. being right. um, underprivileged. And so that's what the report says. Uh, what's his name? Darren Wilson. Darren Wilson um, didn't even get fired. Didn't get charged. Didn't get fired. They didn't say he did a great job, but clear, clear clean bill of health. However, the rest of you guys... There's definitely something wrong with the relationship between the community and the police officers. Mm-hmm. And they, they really went after um, both the court system, which was unique, mm-hmm. and the police department. And real change was uh, is hopefully going to happen because they, 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 they actually made clear you need to do these things differently. So and these Ferguson's consent responded. decrees, I think that's what they're called, they, they actually work. They're effective. The they, changes do occur in these municipalities, hopefully. They have in certain cases. They have in L.A. They're, L.A. was for a long time under consent decree. Um, I think it was under Judge Feast, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. But LAPD is absolutely a kind of iconic example of a police force that would you know, be laughed at or ran from 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But now they're the model. Um, community policing is the new phrase of the day. It's the Red right. Lynch is one of her three priorities in how to deal with this. And it's definitely different. You can see police officers engaging their community, mm-hmm. talking to them, knowing their neighbors' names. Right. And that's a lot because yeah, I, of their I just saw a training. sign in my elevator saying, meet the community officers at the Starbucks on Spring and wherever. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go sit down <laughs> with a bunch of cops <laughs> and have coffee. It's sure. a start. It's uh, yeah. a start. <laughs> but All absolutely. Right. Mari, anything else for Mac? Well... We've spent, you know, the last 45 minutes talking about so many of these cases that have captured the nation's attention, whether it be Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, the list goes on. So just as a federal prosecutor, when you're doing these cases and presenting them to a jury, what is that climate like? Because outside of the courtroom, you know, the conversation is shifting and tensions are high. So how does that impact how you present especially a racially motivated hate crime case to a jury? 
Yeah, so it it's it's good and bad because definitely the culture out there is that the police are the enemy. The police are killing minorities. The police are killing dogs, like in Long Beach. Um, that's bad for us as prosecutors because often we're lumped up or their conduct's imputed to us mm-hmm. um, because we typically have law enforcement witnesses. Mm-hmm. However, um, when we pull this card a lot. Um, we are federal prosecutors. We deal with federal agencies, not just one local police department, mm-hmm. which is not as insular and sometimes um, incestuous and you know everyone knows each other. So we do like to think of ourselves as trying to stay above the kind of smaller politics. And so we absolutely look for jurors who recognize that, you know, there are people out there who will kill simply because of race. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of those people could even be people who wear badges. Often, you know, they are clearly the aberrant ones, um, but that badge doesn't permanently uh, exonerate them. Mm-hmm. And the the culture right now shows that people, for whatever reason, there is a major racial divide, gender divide there's a lot of things dividing people. So I think jurors get that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think being charged with a hate crime um, and being convicted, the chances are much more likely now. Mm-hmm. However, charging police officers for hate crimes will always be very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually say convicting them will be very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. But I think absolutely you're going to see uh, a not a rash, but an increase of police officers being charged mm-hmm. with body cameras, with people actually seeing that, hey, that actually seems crazy that this police officer shot this unarmed person who was trying to get out their you know license during a speeding ticket. A lot of us, uh, especially in certain communities, heard those stories all the time. It's just now being brought out to the right. rest of the right. world because it's not of these new. Videos. It's just uh, now it captured new, the nation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it, it's definitely helpful for us that fellow prosecutors see that it's it's not just a rumor, or a myth, or some aberrant story, but unfortunately these tragedies are happening, and um, maybe not more often, but just more people mm-hmm. are paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. All right, so that brings us to the close of today's very special edition of Justice is Served. I want to thank Mac Jenkins again, Assistant United States Attorney Mac Jenkins, for being with us. And, Mari, welcome back again. I look thank forward you. to next week with you mm-hmm. as well. And uh, please keep the dialogue going during the week. You can find us on iTunes and YouTube and tweet us as well, at Mari Fagel, at Azari Law. And if you have any questions um, about today's discussion you can uh, for Mac, you can also tweet me and I'll be sure to get back to you um, with the answer. Um, we don't give out his They don't allow me to have Twitter. <laughs> my work took away my Twitter. <laughs> but we look forward to your feedback as always, and we will see you next week right here on Justice is Served. Bye-bye. Bye. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not... From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us. Info at BlackHollywoodLive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio, Instagramming, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.